I think that'd be a better name for the, the podcast. There's a lot of ways to fail. All the ways to fail. Yeah. Some of the many ways to fail. In this episode, some more ways that you might fail. Hey, everyone. I'm here today with one of my best friends ever, Tomo Win. We've known each other since the third grade. Yep. Uh, and we've kind of... I guess you never really lived in Chicago when I lived there. You went there. Not after. when I lived there, yeah. Yeah. I came to visit you a few times, but that's about it. Yeah. And you're one of the reasons why I moved to Vietnam. Right. So I stopped by San Francisco on the way here, just kind of kind of randomly. And then you had just come back. Yeah. So the first so. time I had ever come to Vietnam as a tourist, which was, I don't know, ten years ago maybe. Yeah, a little over Something ten years ago. Like that uh, we bumped into you. And you were on your way here. Yeah, just and by chance. Just by chance. And you were going to come and see if it was a place you wanted to live. Ten years later, I'm still here. So I guess it worked out. Tomo, you're an engineer. You're a musician. Yeah, my background's software engineering, right? And uh, music's more of a... It's been a hobby for a while. That's right. Uh, and nowadays, it's mostly uh, what we call techno. I don't know what you call it. I don't know what you guys call it, but uh, we Deep call it techno. Loop music. Okay. It has, it has some of that. Um, I think it has a little bit more than that. There's a lot of different topics that we share common interests in. That's true. Futurism. Yeah. Uh, post-humanism. Yeah. Meditation. Yep. Electronic, electronic music. music. Yep. Uh, Computer-related stuff. Yeah. Definitely you, the underground parts. Especially the under, underground computer art scenes. Yeah. Uh, though you are, you're much more on the engineering side of, of things. That's correct. Uh, I've always been, uh, I mean, I, I was a self-taught programmer since a young age and, uh, then, uh, you know, got a formal training in that as well in school. Um, then went on to actually work, uh, for software companies. So yeah, you can say for sure that that is my background. I'm going to go out there and say in the context of Vietnam, you're also in, an entrepreneur. That's correct. Um, I did start uh, a business before coming here, and actually, uh, you know, before coming to Vietnam, I did work uh, at uh, at a startup that was that was growing, so I got some experience there. Uh, but after coming here, I did start a few different software businesses, mostly web based. So most of my time here in Vietnam has been kind of kind of spent uh, starting businesses, growing businesses, getting experience. Yeah. What's kept you here for 10 years? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think people come to Vietnam for different reasons. Some people come here because of a job. I mean, like you came here not not until you had a job, right? Uh, me, I just kind of, uh, I just came here on my own. No, no plan as far as what kind of work I was going to do when I came. Um, so, yeah, I mean, talking about other people, they have their own reasons. And they stay for their own reasons. I came here to completely on my own. I didn't have uh, whatever. It wasn't a, a job or a company that sent me here. It wasn't a family that that actually my family didn't want me to come here at all. Um, so I had to kind of fight against their wishes to kind of do this thing where I left the U.S. and just went and lived in a foreign country. Um, and then I guess over time, um, 
the reasons that I, I continue to stay here have, have evolved. But in the beginning, it was just, uh, yeah, I quickly fell in love with the lifestyle. Uh, I felt, uh, felt very comfortable here for the first time. Um, whereas in the past, I think, uh, I like many other, uh, uh, Americans kind of just, you, you can, well, uh, maybe most people in the world, you just, you're born somewhere, you grow up somewhere, you live there. Later on, you might uh, get a job and, and move somewhere else, and you you might hop from city to city just based purely on on that reason alone. Just uh, whether you know whether there's a company there that wants you to live there. Um, but when I came to Vietnam, it was at least for me the first time that I decided I would like to be somewhere, and not for any other reasons than than me just wanting to hang out there. So I came to Vietnam to hang out and I liked hanging out here and I just continue to like hanging out here. I assume that one of the reasons why your family were against you moving here was because of the hurt feelings from the Vietnam war. That's correct. So my dad and my dad's side of the family is Vietnamese. Um, they left, I mean, uh, their story is a little bit different from uh, a lot of other people, uh, a lot of other Vietnamese who who left here and moved to the U.S. So uh, my dad and his brothers were actually studying in Japan at the time, um, but then the, a lot of other family was was in Vietnam still uh, during and and right after the war. So of course they were here in the South. They were part of the whatever the, the class of people that. Uh, probably were better off uh, in the older regime, and then in in the new regime, uh, things weren't so good. So for for many reasons, um, a lot of my dad's family uh, found you know found a way to to leave Vietnam, and uh, they they probably left when when they left. You know, they they had a certain animosity towards um, the country or, or the people that were in charge um, when they were leaving. Um, there were a lot of problems, probably a lot of difficulty leaving. So the, the country that they left is very different from the country that I came to for the first time when I came, whatever, 10 years ago. Uh, but I think that a lot of uh, Vietnamese who left uh, a few decades ago and haven't been back don't really, you know, they, they still have in their mind a certain version of Vietnam. And it's the one that's whatever still stuck in the 1970s. Um, whereas it's, I, I've never seen that Vietnam. I've only known the one that, uh, you know, came about after many, many decades of reforms and development. That kind of um, misconception about what is Vietnam like today is uh, also shared by probably most Americans. That's true. I mean, when people, around the world and let's say Americans in, in particular, when they hear the word Vietnam, it's all, it's followed by war, right? So the two things go together. Um, and I don't think most uh, Americans really can uh, th think about any other aspect of Vietnam besides it being a war. The first time I came here, one of the people that showed me around, he brought us to one of the war monuments um, that's close to Coochie Tunnels. Yeah. It's kind of like a building with names in the roof or something like okay. that. And he posed the question, who do you think won the war? Mm. And um, I tried to give a kind of a intelligent, smart, alecky answer. Which was? Oh, man, it was something like, I suppose the North did. Yeah. 
has your answer changed over time? Well, his immediate reply was, nobody wins the war. Yeah. So that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I uh, think some people probably felt that they didn't won, did did win the war, or that a war was won, and definitely a lot of people felt like their side lost to another side. Um, but yeah, I think the the view that actually everyone was a big loser in this is probably very accurate. Mm. But modern day Saigon, yeah, modern day Vietnam, very much different. Very different from what I can only imagine uh, what it was like when my when my family, from when my relatives, my dad, when they left. So my dad did come back for the first time uh, to visit me because I was living here. But he didn't he didn't come visit for the first time until maybe I don't know five or six years after I'd already been living here. Um, and he was he was really just shocked by how different it was. He was imagining. Um, well, he was imagining or remembering this much smaller, much poorer, much less developed country and city. And now it's this very, uh, um, in a lot of ways, it's still not very modern, but it's a lot more modern and westernized than um, than the image that people still have in their minds. So whether it's... Um, uh, yeah, whether it's all the new buildings that have sprung up, um, I think that you know one one thing that uh, people do when they come back after whatever thirty forty years is they try to find the places that they remember in the city, and it's getting harder and harder to to find them because they're just not around anymore. Um, so in a way, the city that they remember is lost. It's it's only in their memories. It's it's been replaced by this completely different city. Uh, do you, is the reaction to that other than bewilderment or amazement? Is it generally a positive take on the changes or is it a mixed bag? I believe it's a mixed bag because I think that, um, I mean, honestly, my, my belief is that there's a lot of mixed feelings in these older this older generation of Vietnamese who who um they don't necessarily they don't necessarily want the country to succeed maybe uh maybe they you know they they left this country and they they kind of feel like it was taken over by by someone else and maybe they don't really want all these changes to be taking place um good or bad but at the same time, they're they're still Vietnamese people, and they still have like they still feel a sense of connection with Vietnamese people. So of course they want things to get better for for, for their people, the, the people that they share this connection with. But maybe they don't. You know, for all these years they've had this uh, bad image about um, you know what happened after they left, and probably they're shocked because it's so different from what they were imagining what it would be like they were kind of thinking like it would still be really bad um and it turns out that actually um in a lot of ways just every everyone's kind of moved on um 
it's really, I mean, the city and the country as a whole is, is really just all young people who were born after the war or well after the war. Um, so it's, you know, the country and the population itself has also just been completely replaced by new people. So it's, and, and it's, it's kind of these new people that are, I don't want to say they're running the country, but as far as like, like in the city, it's, these are the people that are basically running the city as far as like running the economy. And then, and these are the people that you're going to see every day and, and, and be dealing with not the, not this old generation. You've been really involved with the startup scene, I think. Yeah. Uh, not so much these days, but uh, for quite a while, because, you know, I was, uh, especially in the beginning when, when the idea of, of, uh, you know, having a, what what's called a startup, that itself was pretty new here in Vietnam. So the people that were trying to do this sort of thing kind of, you know, shared this bond of, okay, let's, let's try something that a lot of people don't really understand. Uh, maybe if you're young and like, you have parents that want you to get a a normal job. Uh, they don't understand why you're trying to like, you know, you and your, 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 some other random people are trying to like, um, try out this really unproven thing. Um, so there, there were, yeah, there was this community and, um, uh, yeah, I was, I was involved in that. When I first moved here, there was a lot of networking events. Um, you were doing, Bar camp. That's correct. Is that still running? Uh, so for the past two or three years, we, we kind of took a, a break. We just haven't had one, uh, but we're actually in the middle of uh, organizing one for this year. So there will be another bar camp this year. I mean, the first one was here in, I think, 2008. So it's been going for most of those years. It's just that for the past two or two or three years, we kind of took a break. What's the number one advantage or the number one challenge in your mind to doing business in Vietnam? I mean, to be honest, I think that it's, it's just as hard to do business in Vietnam as it is, could be anywhere else. I mean, I think most of the challenges when it comes to being successful in business are, are just, you know, uh, are you doing, are you in the right business at all? Are you, um, are you working on or selling the right product? Are you, um, um, yeah, is, is it a, a service or a product that can actually make money? Like there's, there's a lot of problems that, um, I think, uh, people anywhere they are, are going to face and it's not specific to Vietnam. So, um, of course, Vietnam has its own unique set of problems and challenges. And, uh, I mean, so it comes with, um, advantages and disadvantages. And so for example, like Vietnam, depending on the time, I mean, the era, I mean, it could be a great market for certain kinds of products or services. Um, and so it could be a great place to do business for a certain kind of business at that time. Um, whereas in more, say more developed markets, say Europe or the U S maybe, maybe that time has passed. Um, at the same time, it, you know, it can be too early to do certain kinds of businesses here. So it, it, some, you know, a lot of it's timing. Um, 
so I remember when e-commerce was a new thing here. Um, and at the at that time, when it was still new, what it meant was that a lot of the infrastructure was not yet in place to, if you wanted to have an e-commerce business. So, you know, you would need, say, some sort of payment method. Um, and then once, you know, once the customers are able to pay, how do you actually get the goods to them? Because um, one thing that's unique, you know, very strikingly different about the U.S., where we have the the postal system and it's kind of government run and it kind of works pretty well and and if if that's not enough then we have a number of private companies that can also do delivery uh, maybe uh, maybe with better levels of service maybe better hours or whatever maybe faster um, whereas here that's that was always a challenge is is if you needed to use the normal post then you know it might not be as reliable. So getting uh, shipping products, uh, even, uh, around the city, but especially to, you know, the rest of the country could always be a challenge. Um, but over, over time as, you know, as e-commerce itself, as a, as a, uh, business model was developing, then all these other like auxiliary services for payments and, and logistics and delivery and stuff, those are also coming into place in order to support e-commerce so all that was coming together at the same time some of the past uh startups you did were e-commerce websites for physical goods correct are any of those companies still around? are any of the startups you've worked with in vietnam still going uh some of them are yeah but the the e-commerce ones no yeah uh, there's a travel travel startup that's still ongoing um several other ones have either i mean some have been whatever turned into other ones or other flat out just stop operating let's uh talk a little bit about your current gig okay cryptocurrency right a lot of people have heard of bitcoin i think i would hope that at this point most people have have heard of what bitcoin have heard the word Bitcoin. They probably have some strange ideas of what it is, probably some misconceptions about it. Uh, but I, I figure at this point, it's been hyped up by the news through so many news cycles over the, over the years that probably most people have at least heard about it. If you were to describe the uh, mechanics and the, uh, I want to say functionality, but like the, you know, the, the mechanic, like the actual underlying mechanics and then the usage case of cryptocurrencies to someone who is not very technically savvy. How would you summarize it? I think that's kind of hard actually, because there, there are some nuances to what makes Bitcoin different that are actually quite technical. I mean, if we go back to, okay, like why Bitcoin? Why does it even exist? Uh, because I think that's a valid question. Most people are going to say, well, you know, Bitcoin, is it a way to pay? I already have a way to pay. Is it a way to represent uh, a form of money? I have dollars that already works, right? So uh, is it something else? It Maybe it is, but if it's something else that I don't actually have a need for right now because you know maybe I don't have uh, another thing to do this thing that maybe Bitcoin can do, then I, I'm not going to understand why I would 
want or, or need it. Um, so the, the reason that Bitcoin exists at all, and it's not necessarily for people who are asking those questions, um, but the Bitcoin itself was this innovation that that basically if it, it was the first solution to, um, well, they found a solution to what's called double spend. And it was a way to be able to um, create transactions, and, you know, basically for someone to pay someone else, um, but to do it, you could do it over the internet, meaning I don't have to physically exchange something with you, whether it's a, a physical token or a piece of paper that represents $1 or something, uh, but rather I could, I could email you or something. I could do something over the internet, electronically, remotely. I could send you money um, over the internet. And so for one, um, it, you know, it, since it's, it's, it's electronic, it's digital. So, you know, one, one problem or, you know, one nice thing actually about digital products is that you can just create copies of them, you know, infinitely at the same cost. It doesn't cost you anything to make a copy of a digital product. Um, so if you have, you know, if I have a piece of music and you want to have a copy of it, you can make a copy. It doesn't take my copy away from me. Right. Um, so, and that's the same for other kinds of files, movies, documents, whatever. But when it comes to money, like we don't, we don't want money to work that way. Right. We don't, we don't necessarily want that every time I spend some money, I keep my money and then you have more money. And then just over time, like all that means is that the, the amount of money uh, in the world just keeps increasing forever and forever. Uh, and that is inflation. And so that's, that's one thing that, you know, in some ways you might think, well, that's nice. We all just get richer, but, but actually, no, we all just get poorer because the money that we do have just becomes less valuable. So, I mean, that's why inflation is bad. So back to Bitcoin, um, what, what it was, was the, the first solution for having a way to, for me to send you money over the internet, but without relying on some some third party in the middle to kind of verify that or to, to, you know, to, to say that, yeah, that's, you know, I really do have the money and that now I don't have it. And instead you have it. So for the first time, so without a PayPal, without, without a bank website or something, um, you could just using this decentralized network, um, people could send money around anonymously, remotely, and, but very importantly was that there was a way that it would only be spent one time. So I could, you know, it, it was very hard in the past to prevent this problem where, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't be sure uh, that, you know, the, that, I mean, so I can, I have to prove that I have the money, I have the funds now. And then when I spend it, it has to be that I can no longer spend the same money again and again. So now, now with Bitcoin, we have a way to do this and it doesn't rely on any, like it doesn't rely on a company or one person or a government or something else, something like that to, to basically just say, all right, that's, that's good. That's good. And that's bad. So what role is the company that you're with now? What role do they fill in this kind of crypto ecosystem? Okay. So the company Bitcoin Vietnam basically ha offers a handful of different services and they all kind of use 
use Bitcoin or use crypto to offer these services. So for example, one would be uh, remittances where, where people are working overseas, they need to, they're working overseas, so they're in a foreign country. And generally it's, you know, generally it's kind of easy to use money uh, and send money around in, in one country. So if you're in the same country as the other person, then it's a lot easier to, to use money. But when it comes to cross-border transactions, that's where usually like uh, the, the people that design these financial systems, they don't really make that easy and they didn't really have that in mind. They weren't really planning for people to be, to be working in, in, in other countries so much. So that, that's one problem that, that we can solve by using this kind of other payment system. Uh, which is Bitcoin or crypto. And so another could be just payments in general, where um, you might have an online store or it could be an offline store and you might want to accept payment by multiple payment methods. So not just not just credit cards or cash, or, you know, for, for, for online payments, you can't take cash, right? I mean, unless you do the financial part offline. Uh, which is something that is actually quite common here in Vietnam because it's really the only option or one of the one of the options that people that's one of the only options that a lot of people have is paying by cash. So um, it's it's nice if well first of all Bitcoin solved this problem where um, I mean it was one solution to the problem where especially if you didn't have another solution like if you couldn't use PayPal because PayPal doesn't let you use it in their country, in your country. Um, if you can't sign up for a credit card, especially because, well, uh, it's hard to get uh, credit in your country. Um, and even getting a bank account and then getting a debit card, that can even be hard. So a lot of people, well, they don't even use banks. So um, if they can get access to Bitcoin or something like that, then they, you know, then they can send that around easily they can they can spend it if they want to but that means that there needs to be a place where they can spend it uh and that's that's still that's still a problem because um there's there's a lot of people who might own some some bitcoin or some other crypto um but they don't uh they don't really spend it um and it was you know it was kind of well it was, it was uh, designed to be this peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash Meaning that, so the peer-to-peer -peer part just means that there's no need for a, a central authority to kind of verify the transactions. But the electronic cash part is that it's it's like electronic mail, where in the past we had to like physically take a, a, a piece of paper in another piece of paper, and then you know burn some gasoline in order to like move it from one place to another. Uh, and then one day we we were able to do all of that just by using this network that was already in place and we could without, without physically moving anything we're, we were able to replace all of that by sending a mail from one place to you know one place to a very far away place so with electronic cash we're we're able to do the same thing whereas before i might need to like meet you physically and then hand over you know a few bills or some coins or something now we can do this remotely and you don't have to, you you don't you know when i'm giving you the money you don't have to worry that um it, are you really receiving the money or not because it's something that you can you don't need to trust somebody else to tell you that you can actually verify it yourself and that was something that couldn't be done before so yeah it's like 
electronic cash. So it's meant to be kind of used as cash. It's, it's meant to be spent, right? It's meant to be used to replace these other payment methods. Um, so that's, that's another thing. Um, we also operate, um, the buying also, we have a brokerage, so we were able to help you to buy and to sell, uh, crypto. That would be, let's say from Vietnamese dong into Bitcoin cash or from, Correct. yeah. So we, we support a number of different types of assets. Um, and then we can, you know, uh, whatever it is that you want to, to buy, we, you know, uh, within within a certain list of, of different products that we offer uh we can help you there um and then if you are more of a professional well you know or want to be professional trader we also operate some exchanges where you can kind of do it yourself or you can once you have funds on the platform you can you can trade and create your own orders and set your own prices what's been the adoption of bitcoin in vietnam versus worldwide so one one thing that's really lacking in Vietnam is that, uh, for the most part, except for some some gimmicky things, uh, you really cannot spend Bitcoin anywhere. Uh, nobody really accepts crypto as payment in the country, and it's it, there are various reasons, and and one of them is that it's it's in a very gray legal area where, you know, uh, it well. I think a lot of businesses businesses probably have decided that uh, they don't want to take any risks and accept Bitcoin because it, uh, accepting it and using it as payment uh, might be in this legal gray area that might get them into trouble. So it's probably safer if, if they don't use it for payment. Because there was a time where it was commonplace to accept U.S. dollars at stores. Correct. And then the government cracked down on that. Yeah. So there was a time when one inflation was very high in the country. And that also meant that, um, so the exchange rate, I mean, the, the, the local currency, the VND was basically constantly getting weaker compared to the dollar. Inflation was high. Uh, banks, so banks, and this was probably from the central bank, but banks were offering very high interest rates for people to deposit uh, into VND, and so, so all of this was with people not really having much faith in the local currency, as you know they they never really did, and instead they would fall back onto safer instruments like the us dollar uh perhaps even like the euro uh but also gold so gold has always been like this safe haven asset that people when when people have even whether it's a lot of money or a little money if they have some savings uh they might not want to put it into the bank uh, they they might not trust banks and so they would they're kind of used to banking themselves whether it's putting cash on the on, under the mattress whether it's buying gold and also putting that under the mattress, uh, people were used to having their extra money in. So it's not, it wasn't like in, in more development, more developed countries where people might invest in the stock market and watch those investments increase over time. Rather people, people here, I mean, some people might, might buy, buy real estate, but, uh, I think everyone would be buying gold. And then if they also wanted to save, they, it'd be gold or dollars. Um, so you'd see a lot of tr large transactions like real estate transactions 
at that time, a couple of years ago, until a couple of years ago, um, the the home price might actually be, it might be priced in gold rather than, and it, or it could be priced in dollars. Uh, but yeah, at some point, you know, they kind of shut that down. So you don't see that as much anymore. And uh, if it's illegal for sh shops to be listing prices in dollars and even accepting dollars for goods, would it then also mean that it would be illegal to list? Yeah. So I think if you were to like on your store, if you said, you know, here, here is a, whether it's a hotel room or whether it's a car or something, if you said that it, it's this many dollars and at the same time, if you said, if it's this many Bitcoins, then that both things might be illegal. So for you to do that, whether you're doing it on online or offline, that might be illegal. So the fact that, you know, there, there could be repercussions if you were to do that probably will turn off a lot of people from doing that. And that means they don't want to like say, here are all my wares and I'm selling them for this many Bitcoins. Um, and then even if they wanted to accept Bitcoin as, as payment, even though they're pricing things in VND, uh, which is, that's probably okay. But I think most businesses probably just think it's not, maybe it's not worth the hassle right now. There's this weird thing with cryptocurrencies where, um, the places that I know of where you can actually spend it, it's, you're really paying the price of the local currency and then it just withdraws at the current exchange rate from your, let's say, Bitcoin cash savings. That's right. Right. Yeah. It's not like things are not priced in Bitcoins typically. Yeah. Basically, the, the price in Bitcoin will fluctuate every every minute. Right. So basically, and this is something we, we, we have to deal with because to be honest, no store, no business owner, no, they don't really want to say that. Uh, okay, f you know this this chair we're gonna sell for one Ethereum, and this uh, this table we're gonna sell for you know whatever point one Bitcoin. Um, instead, they want they say they have a price in mind, but it's gonna be in, in dollars or whatever. They're gonna say this chair I want to sell for two hundred dollars, and this table for for whatever many dollars or VND. They don't care what what the price the exchange rate is. They just want to make sure as a business that because they probably paid a certain price or cost to make that good. And it doesn't help them if the, you know, the, the asset that, that they receive when they, when they sell it, if it goes down in value, right. They want to make sure that they have enough to cover the cost. Uh, when, so whatever it costs to make that chair, they need to make sure that they can recoup that cost. And they didn't pay for the production of the chair in Bitcoin. Right. So they say they paid it in dollars. They needed they need to make sure that they're getting enough dollars in to, to pay for that chair and then, you know, do that again and again. Is there any time in the next 10 years where you can imagine uh, large parts of economies or productions are, end up being priced in some kind of cryptocurrency and it's not always being converted to the current exchange rate of dollars. So there's actually a way to do that already. And they're called stable coins. So 
uh, a stablecoin is is a it's a in a way it's a cryptocurrency it's a token it's still one of these crypto things but however they do it basically they they their value remains stable so the name um and in general uh most of these that exist now they're somehow they peg their value to the u.s dollar meaning that one of these stable coin tokens or coins um should always have the value of one u.s dollar sometimes the value can fluctuate and in general that's that's not really supposed to happen i mean uh, the tiny tiny amount of fluctuation is, is to be expected um but in general the whole idea is that you're not you're not investing in a stable coin expecting to make money from it you're not expecting the value to go up at the same time you're not expecting the value to go down so you if you want to have something that will kind of guaranteed keep its value then you might uh convert from a from bitcoin into this stable coin and then as a merchant, you can you can receive these stable coins and not really be too concerned or as concerned that the the, that the value is going to fluctuate. You can basically expect that, you know, an hour, a day, a week later, it's going to be the, the same amount that you receive as, you know, if you receive $100 worth of these tokens today, that you can sell them for $100 in a week. So what do you think would be more common uh, as like a transactional flow let's say you're a you're selling physical goods either through an online shop or a brick and mortar shop and your uh, customers are paying with some kind of cryptocurrency right here are the potential options one like they pay with bitcoin cash and you receive it in a bitcoin cash wallet two they pay with bitcoin cash and you receive it in a u.s dollar account or three, they pay with Bitcoin Cash and you receive it in a stable coin. Probably no merchant wants to receive Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever because of because they're not they're not speculators, they're not gamblers, they're not in the business of buying these assets, crypto assets, and hoping that the value goes up so that they can sell it later. That's that's a completely different business, not the one that they're in. They they need to make sure that they can survive as a business and keep on paying for their operational costs and they need whatever they need dollars or whatever to do that. So it would, you know, you can imagine it would have to be one of these other two options. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be because there are other ways where you can kind of hedge the risk of, of the, the value of whatever you're holding that it fluctuates, but you know, it's, it's quite simple if you just, are receiving whether at the end of the day if, if in your account you're receiving us dollars or a or dollar pegged stable coin and uh so those two options are pretty similar but the i guess one you know one advantage of receiving stable coins instead of actual dollars is that uh well um to be honest when you're in the uh, when you're in the crypto financial system it's compared to the traditional financial system it's a lot easier to move money around so if you get if you can get the money into that system first then if you need to send it to suppliers or whatever i mean assuming that they're also tied into the the crypto financial system then it's a lot easier to do that um but 
if you're, you know, here in Vietnam where you might be selling products to people around the world and you might be dealing with, uh, you know, you might be having to import, uh, things from around the world as well. So you need to be paying for suppliers that are in other countries. Uh, if you're able to do that through the crypto system rather than the traditional system, it's a lot easier. So in that way, it can be an advantage to have money that is in that system rather than taking it out into the traditional system and then relying on, on banks to do the bank transfers. Um, so that, that could be an advantage. What kind of, uh, which countries, if any, uh, are looking into moving their fiat currency to a cryptocurrency? I think in general, no, no country, no central bank wants to lose the the power of fiat no nobody i mean right now uh, a central bank has a special power that is given to them by you know by by the law and they can do it and nobody else can they can print money nobody else can and uh if you know for example in the case of vietnam the threat of dollarization is a threat to uh, you know the central bank and its ability to have some sort of control over the economy. If if everyone's moving to the dollar, then it doesn't matter what they set the interest rates at. And so that's that's how they might, you know, try to cool down an overheating economy or or you know um or speed up a slow economy is by by making money supply easier or harder to get. Um, but if people aren't using that currency anymore and they're using something else like dollars, then what matters more is like how easy is it to get dollars um it doesn't matter how you know what the interest rates of the, the vnd is and so this is you know this is something that central banks probably don't want to lose control over uh, they're probably worried about uh losing that control so i've noticed our mutual friends who uh, several of which are involved in in some kind of crypto cryptocurrency space. Yeah. Most of them have a computer nerd background. Yeah. Most of them either whether it's engineering or systems administration and they're not necessarily people who I would have pegged as um finance guys That's or true. people or economists, but now all of my engineer friends are talking like economists. That's true. And it's it's they, if it wasn't for Bitcoin, they most likely would never have gotten into economics or finance. And the thing is, it's so cryptocurrency kind of uh, puts together the two worlds, technology and finance, um, because uh, you can say Bitcoin is, is for the first time, it's like a programmable money. It's something that it's something that computers can use natively. Um it's something that the internet can use natively rather than only, you know, certain people. I mean, it's, it, you can finally use it. Um, I mean, you could, you could maybe have digital payments before, but it was always using some, some company or some third party to help you do it. Whereas now, um, like Bitcoin was the first, uh, payment system, first, money system 
that was kind of native to the internet the same way that um, all these other protocols, so web, email, file transfer, these are protocols and they're just part of the internet, right? They're just, they're, they are what the internet, you know, when you describe, when you describe how to build an internet, these are just parts of it now. And then it, it, until Bitcoin, we were missing uh, inter uh, internet money. And, and now we have it. We have finally a protocol for, for money on the internet, the same way as we always had a protocol for mail on the internet. So that's probably why people who had a technical background, uh, but maybe weren't interested in finance, uh, but they, they could see that, okay, now, now, now money is just another technology. It's just another part of the internet. Um, and since they are, they were already quite familiar with the internet and, you know, maybe their, their lives were basically just based around the internet, then this just, this is now a new part of their lives. Is there any part of a software engineer's mindset that is particularly resonates with stock trading or economics not the not the technical specifics of cryptocurrency, but just these larger. Oh, this one's increasing in value over time, or you know, hedging the values of hedging your bets. I mean, is this is there anything in there that you think engineers have an advantage with, or is it just uh, kind of? I don't think so. Not necessarily. No. All right. I think it's it's just that you know. Once, once someone who's an engineer who previously wasn't interested in finance, once they, you know, go down the Bitcoin path, then over time they find all these other things that are also useful for, you know, going f further down the path. Right now, as we're recording this, yeah. uh, the movement festival is happening. Uh, it's probably just ended. Yeah. Just ending. Yeah. And you, you, you've been going there the last few years. You're not there this year. I'm not there this year. I, I don't remember. So back when I used to live uh, near Detroit, I did go, you know, a few times. Uh, but after moving to Vietnam, it's been more of like, a, you know, a pilgrimage back to the, you know, the Mecca of techno. So I have been going there uh, year after year. I, I'm not there this year. Um, and I, I kind of regret it now that I see all the posts from people, uh, not people I know, but just seeing people post about their experiences at the festival this year. And it seems like it was a lot of fun. I think Orbital was there. Yeah. How does that festival compare to one, like the raves we went to as kids yeah. and to the, uh, the, the one in Fukuoka? So in a way, it's in a way it's an extension of those raves that we went to in the '90s, uh, all around the Midwest, right? And so obviously Detroit was a big part of that scene, and we were going to Detroit as well. Um, I mean, it's it's probably the closest thing that you can find to that kind of experience in in, in this age. Um, even if it's happening for the most part in the daytime. So it's, 
instead of being very dark, it's very, it can be very sunny. Um, although there's also, so what they have there is this underground stage, which is, um, not only showcasing underground music, but it's literally underground. So it's, it's always dark there. So you can kind of still replicate that feeling of being in, in a, in a dark warehouse, uh, in the middle of the night, um, by going to the underground stage. So in, but in general, that the whole weekend, whether it's at the actual festival, which is actually it's it's in like a public park of the city, uh, right on the riverfront, um, and then throughout the festival, and then after the after it closes at midnight, then there are all these like after hours parties happening all over the city. Um, so again, those are again they can because they they can be whether the whether they're happening at like just a normal club or whether they're being organized at some kind of pop-up space that's usually not like a clubbing space but has been taken over in order to do some sort of after hours uh event so th those events can also be like kind of like the the parties that we would have gone to in the 90s and you for the last Last year or the last two years, you've gone to this event in Fukuok Island. Right. So uh, there's this uh, festival, music festival, that happens over New Year's uh, in Fukuok, in, which is kind of southwest part of Vietnam. It's an island. And it's, it's these Russian organizers. And basically, after, after having lived in Vietnam for many years and not seeing a whole lot when it comes to electronic music. Um, I mean, there's, there's DJs coming here and there, um, but overall it's a very, very tiny scene. And, uh, I guess not a whole lot of local demand yet, uh, for good electronic music, but it's these Russians who just love the party and know all these <laughs> other Russians that just love the party. Are they based here in Vietnam or they just import themselves for think, the party? I think they import themselves um, for the most part. I think they, they import themselves en masse for this festival. And, I mean, they import themselves and import a lot of other things. And most importantly, they're importing really the top electronic music talent from all, all around the world. And I mean, it's, it's, it's really for, for that 10 days, it's, it's, probably the best music festival happening anywhere in the world at that time. And it's happening. It's, it's really shocking that it's happening right here in Vietnam. So you went once or twice to that? I went twice. Yeah. Are you going to go again this year? Uh, undecided. I haven't bought tickets yet. I mean, the, the tickets for episode are already on sale. I, you might even be able to still get early bird tickets now. And then the prices go up throughout the year. I haven't, I haven't uh, bought Last year I would have already, but this year I haven't yet. Mm. Yeah, I might go, but I think this year I'm just going to wait a little bit more to see see the lineup. As somebody who's as into electronic music as you are, it's you don't go out to listen to music very often. That's true. Sometimes I do make an effort to go out and unlike other people who are probably going out that night who are just trying to have some fun, I might be going out just to make sure that I'm still kind of like, not so much in the loop, but at least like I, I can still remember 
what then that you know hearing that music in that environment sounds like so that i can you know if i'm going to be writing music later then i can have that in mind um whereas if you're only if you're only like listening to music in your headphones i think you know you're just going to end up writing a different kind of music whereas if if you you know if you've been experiencing it firsthand as something very loud that's going through your body um then it's just very different from headphones music that is written with the express intention that it will be dj'd oftentimes has a different song structure than music that's written with the intention that you're going to listen to that track yeah that's true if you're just writing music and it's never going to be dj'd then you can follow whatever structure that you want uh, it can you know it can be very long and it can have parts that are whatever um well for one you, you don't have to be at the same tempo throughout but if you if you do that for something that you want someone to dj and the tempo is changing and maybe doing it unexpectedly then you really you're really gonna throw the dj off and you're gonna cause some train wrecks so yeah if you're if you're writing music with the you know of course it should be enjoyable to listen to no matter what but if you're going to be part of this whole dj scene and you want you want djs to pick up your track and then play it out then it's it's got to fit into something that they can mix together with other songs so that means that it's got to uh, at least parts of it have to follow a certain kind of song structure yeah so when we first started writing music you were listening to a lot of drum and bass and the music you were writing was drum and bass. Now it seems that you're listening to techno and writing techno. That's true. I mean, in the nineties, drum and bass was still very, very new and innovative. And, and to me, at least it seemed like, um, it, it was evolving very quickly. And so it was very exciting. Um, now I think that as a global movement, it's also kind of, kind of died down. Yeah. Um, maybe, yeah, I, you know, maybe, maybe techno was not quite as exciting as far as what was happening, as far as the changes happening, uh, throughout those years. But in anyways, it's still kind of stayed very, I don't want to say mainstream cause it's not, but it's still kind of, a mainstream as far as as club music goes around the world it's still it's still going to be people in clubs in all the major cities around the world still listening to techno today though mostly they're techno playing house edm right mostly. uh that's a completely different scene yeah that's all i can say it's just a completely yeah. different scene and it's if just not even the same a, uh typical bar or a typical nightclub it's probably going to be something pop some kind of pop music all this stuff is just completely different world um i guess i'm talking about this kind of global at least in a lot of these the major cities around the world um there's this kind of global circuit of whether you call it underground because it's not pop and this kind of underground music that you would hear at clubs and you know you have these djs from these cities not the same ones but around the world 
that are just traveling along the circuit and going to these famous clubs in the different cities. And it's, it's one kind of big global scene, but it is separate from whatever pop or, or EDM or whatever. It's, it's a separate world and it's, it's not just specific to any one city. It's not, it's not just Berlin. It's not just Detroit. Um, it's, it is happening everywhere. I think right now I'm going to play one of your songs a little bit, a piece of one of your songs. All right. All right. We can just kind of pretend that we're listening to it. It'll be on in the background, kind of start getting louder. The way you approach writing music, if it's techno versus the drum and bass you wrote when you were younger, yeah. do you take the same approach? Um, I would say no. So one thing is, um, I think that, I think drum and bass was, at least for me, um, at least in that time, it was very, uh, sample based. It was really, it was really, at least for me, it was really all, all about samples. Whereas techno is, um, much less about manipulating samples and more involving synthesis. So that would be one big difference. We both use Renoise yeah. for our music composition. And when you do synthesis in Renoise, are you using plugins or are you using samples and then doing sample-based synthesis? It could be both. And even, even a lot of what you might, even at the end of the day, you might say that this is synthesis. There might still be some samples, at least some kind of a sample uh, at the very core of it. Mm -hmm. So it's like the initial waveform. Yeah. So whether it's really synthesis or not, and whether it's analog or digital or whatever, I mean, uh, there's a lot of overlap, but, um, I would say just before I was, it, for me, it was more about just cutting up samples. Uh, and now, now it's, it's less of that. Yeah. How often do you, carve time away to work on creative things outside of work. Yeah. I, I wish it was more because right now it's, it's really not much at all. And sadly. Other than music you've done, uh, ASCII art, ANSI art. ANSI and ASCII, right. So it's sort of a text based or not really pixel based because it's not exactly a pixel, but yeah, text based art, which is popular in the nineties. Yeah. When you made one recently for like, I, I made one for my, for our friend's birthday. Yeah. What tool did you use? Uh, I used uh, something called Pablo draw. Okay. Yeah. It's no more acid draw. I'm, I'm not sure if that's still around. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm, yeah. I think this is this Pablo thing is what a lot of people use. You know, here's here's something that was interesting. The whole the whole art form of ANSI and ASCII works. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was kind of this in a way the state of the art of the technical limitations of the day in I terms mean, that's of what it was all about. You know, what can you display in a computer screen and yeah. what's in some way the most intricate way you can intricate thing you could display within that resolution and within yeah. that. I mean, it was just text on a screen. 
maybe uh, 24, uh, 25 rows by 80 columns. And what's interesting about that is a whole scene was birthed around that yeah. with art packs yep. being released and people who were running their own BBSs showing, you know, having a, a title for their BBS. Yeah. And maybe the equivalent today would be, okay, you have a Facebook profile and there's a banner cover image for your Facebook profile, but, and it has certain technical, it's got certain dimensions, certain resolutions, but no scene of, oh, we make, there's no like band of artists, misfit artists saying we make uh, Facebook uh, banner cover photos. I can't think of anything that's equivalent now. I do, I would want to point out that one of the reasons that maybe the, the NC art scene came about was that there was also this whole other existing uh, logistics layer of people of the wear scene. So pirate software. And so the wear scene, they already had this system of this underground network of of uh, BBSs and, and people sending files back and forth. And then over time, like these BBSs, uh, well, first of all, they wanted to have some art from themselves. Maybe they wanted some art to include with the, the, the software that they were packaging up. And so that was maybe where the start of the need of this art was, like a way for these these groups who wanted to, to look cooler than the other groups. They wanted to kind of have cooler and cooler art to differentiate themselves. And it was, it was going to be sent around in the software that was being distributed around the world. And then it was also going to be displayed prominently on the on these very elite uh, and very prestigious underground BBSs that people were connecting to. So they would see this art. So, you know, for that, you know, for that reason, they also wanted to have really, really cool looking art. And then from that, from that layer, from that distribution network, then it was also possible to use the same system, not just to send, send software around, but to just send pure, pure files of just art around. So maybe if it wasn't for that kind of existing underground network of software pirates, then this new layer on top where people were just making art for the sake of art, that may have never come about. Now we have such vastly larger potential audiences. The distribution systems are so much more robust and speedy. Yeah. But at least from, from this armchair, yeah. it feels like there's no vitality. I, I might be really wrong, you know, maybe the equivalent of it today is an illustrator who has a YouTube channel. I mean, maybe, maybe back to what I was just saying in that it was, yeah, it didn't start out as just people making art for the sake of art, but rather it had like an uh, an almost a commercial purpose, right? It, even if even if it was commercial for people who are not making money, but actually just kind of stealing software and and you know maybe they're taking money away from from other businesses instead, but still it was out of that it it, it was out of that business that came about this need to have some art for it some kind of 
parallels there though to underground dance parties and yeah. you're like in a you're in a building that you don't that isn't uh up to code for this kind of venue and mm -hmm. you don't have a permit or a license to be hosting a party and still you're doing it and i don't i don't know where where other people were in the world when when uh they were doing they were doing uh ANSI art or whatever but one one thing that's interesting is uh we were in Columbus, Ohio, yeah, which was kind of considered a boring place. Yeah. And when you're living in a kind of boring but comfortable suburban environment, you go out of your way to seek stuff that is edgy. Yeah. Or at least we did. We went out of our way to try to find where is the cool music, where is the cool art. Oh, it's a little it's a little illegal. Oh, it starts to become more interesting. Especially when online networks finally made that reachable for people like us. We, you know, instead of having to drive to New York or whatever to experience some other cultures, we were finally able to access them from, from where we were just by using, well, you know, before the internet, there were these other networks, online networks. And then with the internet, then there was all of the stuff that was on the internet. Sometime when I look at these kids yeah. here at the lab who have been doing graphic design and advertising. Right. Who, who grew up on the internet, right? They, yeah. In some ways, there's a parallel to their pursuit of trying to have a great Instagram or a great Behance profile mm -hmm. of their art and get recognized and get a job. There's a certain hunger there and a certain commercial interest there yeah which i think has a parallel to like when we were kids but i could i mean it's less it's less underground but yeah. i don't know if we these these i don't kind of call them kids it's not exactly fair but you know these kids are i seems passionate about their craft and always trying to improve okay which is I mean, that's kind of this like vitality that communities of artists, whether you're dispersed online on, or if you're in one roof here, you can kind of, kind of create this comp part of it's competition too. You know, you want your track or your art to be a little bit cooler than the next person's. And then you see that they one upped you and now you're motivated to improve your skill. Yeah. And when you remove yourself from that competitive environment, which in some ways I felt I have done okay. recently. I don't know. It can be sad. It can be a sad thing. Hmm. You know, there's something interesting about being surrounded by people who are inspiring you and then you wanting to contribute to the conversation of that art. Yeah. Especially when you're younger. And then like in our case, especially not, not only were we young, but we were, uh, in a not not so stimulating environment. I mean, Columbus, Ohio, uh, quite quite normal. I mean, just kind of uh, not just normal, but just uh, not a whole lot of flavor or un or uniqueness or a lot of like you know there, it wasn't like the center of culture where things were happening. Uh, things were always happening in in all these other cities, and then you know maybe over over a long period of time things would trickle to the the markets like columbus um, but we you know if we if you wanted to 
be more up to date on what was happening around around the country, then you would have to you may you would have to make an effort to go out and find that, or also talk to the few other people that were around you in, in the city who might have already done that and already kind of like said, okay, over up north in Detroit, they've got this new thing going on. It's called techno. Um, or, or whatever, like there, there were things happening and it could be within a, a, a driving distance of the city. Um, but you know, it wasn't feasible for you personally to go drive around the country to, to, to spot all the new trends happening. You would have to get some help. And of course with the internet, it became like a lot easier to do that. This is going to be really postmodern in that, you know, self-referential, there's yeah. so many times where whenever we get together, we have conversations and then I'm always feeling a tinge of regret that I didn't record it or, or something. It. Mm. Cause like, Oh, that was really interesting. I'd like to share that tidbit with someone else. Yeah. So it was, it's kind of funny to do this on a microphone suddenly. Yeah. It's kind of weird to, I mean, usually when we're, we're when we're talking, it's not in front of my microphone. So normally when we're talking, we're both typing on our keyboards that's at the true. same time. That's true. For most of our history, that's been the case. You know, yeah. <laughs> Whether we're talking to each other by, by chatting or sitting next to each other and yeah. working on something. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to do uh, one of these in the future where we actually jam and write music or something and then that probably mm. do a lot of editing to make it bearable to watch but that would i think that would take a lot of editing it would take a lot of time as well right i mean yeah. from start to finish it'd be lots of hours of recorded video yeah well who knows how much of this bit i'm gonna have to cut out <laughs> you're, you're kind of like Am I not even in the video? No, you're in the video, but you're quite uh, shiny. Every single one of these, there's something technical that I'm not happy with. But the whole point is that it's better to do something, even if it's imperfect, and learn from the mistakes, you know. Because otherwise, you, you can spend months researching a, equipment or thinking right. about how you might do it perfectly you, you and can, never actually do anything. You can learn a lot faster through this trial and error, just trying things out and seeing what you need to focus on yeah yeah are you still doing a podcast with min no um i mean it's it, it's not like we killed it but yeah it has been a very long time since the last time sadly it's, it's hard to get something started and it's also hard to keep something going that is true both are hard and yeah once you've gotten something started, then yeah, the next challenge is how do you keep it going? Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of times you might've expected that there would be some, some level of interest or feedback at least, and that would kind of help you keep going. And then when maybe it turns out to be much less than you expected. And then now like, do you, do you keep on trying? And hope that you can, you know, improve what you're doing to 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 the level that you makes you happy and makes other people happy. Or do you think, oh man, this is just not going to ever work? If it can take, it can take years of consistent content creation to gain traction on 
something like that's that. That's probably true. And, and maybe for content creation, it's it's okay to spend years to improve because maybe maybe all that effort, even the stuff that you put out there in the beginning, maybe it will still have some value. But there's a lot of other kinds of products or businesses where if it's going to take you multiple years to figure things out, you're going to die, you know? So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe for this kind of thing, it's, it's okay to not figure everything out, uh, at first or even after the first six months, but for, for other kinds of things that you can do, um, especially when it involves money and if, when it involves spending a lot of money, then you, of course, in the same way as you're not going to know everything up front, you're, you're still going to have to figure things out, a few things out as you go along. But if it, if it takes you that long to figure it out, then, you know, this is why a lot of businesses die. Um, you know, most, you know, most businesses fail pretty, pretty quickly, like in the first year. Um, and not just, not just, not just startups, right. Uh, also like restaurants and very, very traditional businesses, very traditional business models, ones where they're, you're not necessarily like inventing this whole new type of thing uh, or a whole new market. You're, you're doing something that other, many other people have done successfully already. And uh, still a lot of people, a lot of the times uh, will just not be able to make it work out. And then within a year they will, decide it's never going to work out. I don't know if, if those people are coming from like a background where they were also an employee first, but if you, if you know that all, as long as you show up and do the bare minimum of what's required, you have this stability or at least an illusion of stability of a paycheck. Yeah. And, um, when you're trying to do your own thing, and uh, your failure, like based on the success of the project is going to yeah. mean whether or not you get the paycheck. Yeah. A lot of times, if you're doing your own thing, a lot, a lot of the times, first of all, you don't have to just show up. It's not just about showing up. But even if you do show up, if you're, if you're spending your time on the wrong thing without realizing it, you might put a whole lot of effort into doing something and then later on realize that was just completely the wrong thing to be spending your time on, you know? So, and nobody's there to tell you, Hey, that's, you're going down the wrong path. Not necessarily. If you're lucky, you might have like a mentor or something. How much of that have you experienced in your past startups? I would say a lot. I think a lot of the time has been, um, me and other people not really knowing, um, what the right thing to do is which direction to go. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of, it's a learning experience. If you are, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of companies that do end up being successful, they didn't start out with the business that they, that, they, that made them successful, meaning that they started out doing one thing later on, they switched to another thing and then maybe they switched more than one time, but eventually they, 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 you know, discovered a formula for success, but it wasn't what they started out with. Um, so yeah, I think that's just normal. You shouldn't expect otherwise. You shouldn't expect to 
just, you know, if you're doing a completely new kind of product or business, you should not expect that all your assumptions going into it are going to be correct. You should expect that you're going to be wrong on a lot of things. And sometimes you'll never, you'll, you know, your assumptions turn out to be wrong and you do not actually figure out what the right thing to do is. Sometimes you do figure it out. Um, but yeah, anyways, I wouldn't discourage people from stopping too early if they, you know, if they, once they realize that their assumptions, a few of them are, are completely wrong. Um, you know, just that, that, that is, that is normal. Um, but if you don't quickly enough figure out what the right things are, then you're just, you're just going to burn through all your cash. How do you know when it's best to pivot versus best to throw in the towel? I don't know if I can tell you what the, the right heuristic for that is. Um, cause you know, maybe it's a function of how, how much money you're burning. So how much time you have left before you've spent all the money that you had allocated for this endeavor. Um, but you shouldn't expect this and you know, you shouldn't expect that it's going to be three years. I mean, maybe, maybe there's certain kinds of things like maybe like drug research is this kind of thing where it's going to take years for, you know, the trials to get the results that they would need and then to get FDA approval and so on. But, uh, if you're just making an app or something or a game, then uh, I think if you're thinking that you're going to just be on one path for three years without ever deviating, um, without ever getting feedback to tell you whether you're, you're on the right path or not, then yeah, three years, that's too long. One year, maybe, maybe too long, maybe, maybe just the right amount of time. I don't know. Do you subscribe to the lean startup philosophy? Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I spent, I spent, uh, two years, uh, doing motorbike jackets without releasing any of them. So yeah. I feel like I feel a little weird in that, you know, <laughs> I feel like you're shining a light on I, what not to do. <laughs> I, I'm not shining a light on you specifically more. I'm it's on me. Cause I think we're all guilty of this. We're all guilty probably of for many reasons, not getting feedback early enough, uh, whether we're afraid of getting bad feedback, negative feedback, um, you know, uh, like there's a saying where if you're not, if you're, if you don't feel embarrassed by the first version of, of your product, then you've probably spent too long developing it. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. I've always been more from the other, I've, I've always kind of taken things from the other perspective, which is you only have one time to make a first impression. Yeah, that's, that's also true. But I, you know, maybe both things are true. Both, both sayings are true, but uh, there's risks to both meaning like if you, yeah, you can screw up a first impression and that could doom your business, but you could also wait too long to get that first impression. And that could also doom your business. There's a lot of ways to fail. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of ways to fail. I think that would be a better name for the, the podcast. There's a lot of ways to fail all the ways to fail. Yeah. Some of the many ways to fail in this episode. <laughs> some more ways that you might fail. Tomo, thanks for uh, joining me here today. Yeah, no problem. There'll be a link to your uh, SoundCloud account. Okay. Down in the 
down in the description here. Yeah, I think my SoundCloud username is Tomo Saigon. Tomo Saigon. Yeah. T O M O space or no all space, one, all one word. T O M O S A I G O N. Yeah, that's generally kind of my username on the on the internet. Tomo Saigon. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. And uh, please, if you're watching, yeah, hit that subscribe button. We, I need more than five. <laughs> I need more than five.